Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Professor Robert Glitzman is the J.B. and Maurice C. Shapiro Professor of environmental law at George Washington University in the United States. He is an authority on both environmental law and administrative law. And he is the author of a number of different works, including most recently, the Elder Encyclopedia of Environmental Law, Decision-Making in Environmental Law. And without any further ado, I'm going to call on Professor Glixman to share his insights with us. Thank you, Professor Cousins, for that uh, generous introduction. Thank you all for attending tonight. Uh, I'm sure you know something about our esteemed president, but I, uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about him tonight, and we'll see if you've changed your opinions or reinforced opinions you already had. When I uh, give talks like this, I usually uh, accompany them with PowerPoint slides, uh, if, if for nothing else than to provide a little bit of entertainment. But uh, try as they might, I could not think of a way to translate what I'm going to tell you into entertainment. And so I'm, I'm just going to deliver my remarks cold. In 1987, the US rock band, REM, recorded a song called The End of the World as We Know It. And the song begins with this line. It starts with an earthquake. Well, that would be the election of Donald Trump in November 2016, which I regard as among a small handful of the most cataclysmic events in US history. I do not think that the world itself will end anytime soon, although a former Obama advisor recently referred to President Trump as, to quote him, an existential threat to the planet. I do think that US environmental law, as those of us who studied it have come to know it, may soon become unrecognizable as a result of an all-out assault on U.S. environmental law and policy by the Trump administration and its Republican allies in Congress. To quote recent Nobel laureate Bob Dylan, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. And in fact, I've given a version of this talk several times since I left the U.S. five or six weeks ago, and every time I give the talk, it gets a bit darker uh, based on recent developments. What I want to do this evening is to describe the state of environmental law in the Trump era, largely in the US, but to a lesser extent internationally, and its likely future. And I'm going to frame it in terms of what I'm calling the three Ps, people, policies, and procedures. So let me start with people. And I might subtitle this portion of my talk, Foxes Guarding Hen Houses. During the campaign last year, Donald Trump promised to abolish the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, or at least to use his words to tear its authority to bits. He characterized EPA's efforts to protect the environment as disgraceful and followed the Republican Party line that regulations generally, but environmental regulations in particular, kill jobs, harm the economy, and add nothing of value to society. Although he purports to be an advocate of clean air and clean water, nothing he has said or done since taking office supports that claim in the slightest. The people he has chosen to lead key environmental agencies in the federal government 
are symptomatic of his long-standing antagonism to environmental regulation. Every single one of Trump's key environmental policy advisors and officials has questioned whether the science supports the conclusion that humans have significantly contributed to climate change. Every one of those officials has refused to commit to do anything to address climate change, calling action unnecessary, premature, pointless, or too expensive. Environmentalists and some holdover officials from the Obama administration have feared that the administration would order the destruction of years' worth of data collected by the government on climate change and related matters. And they began downloading information to private servers in the last weeks of the Obama administration to try and prevent loss of critical climate change information. Agency staffers even opened what were sometimes referred to as rogue Twitter accounts to counter the flow of what they regarded as inaccurate information, also known as alternative facts, flowing from official agency channels. But it doesn't stop with Donald Trump himself. The recently confirmed administrator of EPA is a fellow called Scott Pruitt, the former attorney general of the state of Oklahoma. His online biography at the time of his appointment described him as a leading advocate against EPA's activist agenda. He's made a career of suing EPA to limit its power. Indeed, he made that a priority in his position as attorney general in Oklahoma. He led or participated in 14 lawsuits against EPA, each of which sought to block or weaken EPA's efforts to protect health or the environment. Indeed, he sometimes used legal briefs drafted by fossil fuel industry interests verbatim in his lawsuits against EPA. On his first full day on the job, after being confirmed by the U.S. Senate, Pruitt questioned in front of his agency's employees whether EPA has the legal authority to restrict carbon dioxide emissions, even though the Supreme Court of the United States had clearly held several years earlier that not only does EPA have the authority to regulate emissions that contribute to climate change, it's got the legal duty to do so. In testifying before the Senate prior to his confirmation vote, Pruitt had pretty much hinted that the agency did have authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And so that position changed radically the day he was confirmed. Secretary of State, as you probably know, is Rex Tillerson, former CEO of ExxonMobil, which for years financed climate change denial research. He testified at his confirmation hearing that he doesn't consider climate change to be an imminent national security threat. He also testified that he doesn't believe that greenhouse gases are the key factor in rising global temperatures, citing research by University of Alabama professor John Christie, a longtime climate change skeptic. Attorney General of the United States is Jeff Sessions, the chief law enforcement officer who is responsible for enforcement of statutes across the board, including the environmental statutes. Sessions has a history of hostility to environmental regulation in his previous position as senator from Alabama. He once said that carbon dioxide is not really a pollutant, it's a plant food, and it doesn't harm anybody except that it might include temperature increases. That's a slight exception. 
He voted when he was a senator to amend the Clean Air Act to prohibit EPA from regulating greenhouse gas emissions. His assistant attorney general, in charge of supervising the agency's environmental crimes division, was formerly a lobbyist for the coal industry. Trump has filled virtually none of the traditional science positions in the federal government. During the George W. Bush administration, there were about 50 employees dedicated to scientific research and advice. During Obama, that number increased to about 130. I think only one has been appointed under the Trump administration. And he has yet to appoint a science advisor. The purported uh, leading candidate for that position is a physicist at Princeton University who once referred to climate scientists as a glassy-eyed cult. All of these officials are backed up by Republican majorities in both houses of Congress. To give you a sense of what is on the wish list of Republicans in Congress, let me quote to you a bill that some of them introduced last year. It has not yet been introduced this year, but uh, we'll see. This is the language of the bill in full. The Environmental Protection Agency shall terminate on December 31, 2018. So that's congressional policy on EPA. All right, let me turn to policy, my second P. And my subheading for this portion of the talk is what else does the fossil fuel industry want? Let me start with a bill that was recently passed by a congressional committee called the Secret Science Reform Act, which will probably go to a vote in the full House fairly soon. This bill would require the Environmental Protection Agency to rely only on data that can be replicated or made available for independent analysis. Now, that sounds fairly innocuous, but it's not quite problematic instead. And it's problematic because health research of the kind that EPA does often contains confidential personal information that it's simply illegal to share with others. As a result, EPA would be prohibited from using many of the best scientific studies at its disposal as a basis for its regulatory decisions. It would be disabled from relying on these studies because they couldn't be replicated. Further, the replication requirement would prohibit EPA from relying on studies of one-time events, such as the massive BP oil spill of a few years ago in the Gulf of Mexico. Hopefully that only occurs once, and so we won't have replicable studies of that event. In effect, then, the bill, if enacted, would prevent use of much work by independent scientists currently relied on by EPA while allowing the government to continue to use industry-supported research. Democrats responded to the bill by introducing their own piece of legislation which would protect scientific integrity within federal agencies. And it would direct agencies, among other things, to develop policies to protect whistleblowers. I read just this morning that EPA's scientific integrity office is already investigating a complaint filed against Scott Pruitt which alleges that he violated existing agency scientific integrity policies and norms by knowingly mischaracterizing the state of climate change science. All right, aside from changing the scientific base upon which the agency acts, what else 
constitutes Trump administration environmental policy. Devolution is a second key underpinning of the administration's environmental policy. Scott Pruitt's passion seems to be turning regulatory power exercised by federal agencies like EPA over the past 47 years back to the states. He has indicated that he wants EPA to have minimal authority, including authority to oversee state regulation. Now, he has acknowledged that there is a legitimate role for the federal government to play in regulating pollution that crosses state lines, because no individual state has both the incentive and the legal authority to attack that kind of transboundary pollution. And yet, he joined judicial challenges to a series of EP efforts to adopt transboundary pollution control regulation. So one might question his commitment to even allowing the federal government to intervene in that area. This effort to shift the balance of power from the federal government back to the states is worrisome. There are several important reasons why state regulation, at least in the United States, is unlikely to be adequate to address environmental health and safety problems. Congress, during the 1970s, shifted the locus of environmental policymaking responsibility and authority from the states to EPA for precisely these reasons. Among other things, there was the perception that at least some states lacked the expertise, the resources, or the political will to implement effective environmental protection programs. These problems have not disappeared. And as a result, a large-scale shift of power from the federal government back to the states would likely see these same concerns resurface. One indication of what a world driven by state environmental policy might look like in the U.S. takes the form of a bill recently introduced in the state of Wyoming's legislature, Wyoming being a major coal-producing state. The bill, which as far as you know has not been enacted yet, would impose fines on electric utilities that derive any of their power from wind or solar energy. Yes, you heard me. But it's worse than that. It's worse than the likelihood that state regulation will be too weak, at least in the less progressive states. Efforts by Pruitt and the Republicans to shift authority to the states is blatantly one-sided. Our Clean Air Act provides significant authority to the states to adopt regulations that are more stringent than the ones adopted by the federal government. There's one exception to that. Well, there are several, but one of the most important exceptions relates to emissions to control um, air pollution that comes out of tailpipes of newly manufactured cars, so-called tailpipe emission standards. The fear was that if all 50 states had the authority to adopt regulations controlling tailpipe emissions that differed from the federal government's, the car manufacturers would have to manufacture cars for 50 different jurisdictions, creating a really chaotic situation where they'd have to have multiple assembly lines to produce cars with emission control equipment that met the standards of 50 different states. And so what Congress said is, no, only EPA has the authority to regulate tailpipe emissions released by newly manufactured cars. But 
It then turned around and said, we're going to create an exception to that for the state of California for two reasons. Number one, California began regulating auto emissions before the federal government did in the U.S. And so there was a feeling that the agency needed to defer to California since it was the first mover. Second, California's air pollution quality was among the worst in the nation, especially in areas like Los Angeles. And so it needed the authority to adopt more stringent regulation. So what Congress did was build into the statute a provision that says Congress, uh, that, excuse me, EPA has the uh, authority to grant waivers to the state of California of the general prohibition on state regulation of tailpipe emissions. If California wants to adopt more stringent standards, it can apply to EPA for a waiver, and if the relevant criteria are met, the agency is allowed to grant the waiver. Well, California has taken advantage of that waiver provision many, many times in the last 40 or 50 years. Every single time, EPA has granted the waiver. Scott Pruitt says it's time to review whether or not it's appropriate to repeal California's authority to adopt more stringent tailpipe emission standards. Again, notwithstanding his professed commitment to enhancement of state sovereignty in environmental policymaking. Pending bills in Congress would prohibit states from adopting or implementing any energy or conservation or water efficiency standards for new products. A stunningly senseless idea. In addition, drastic proposed cuts to EPA's budget include slashing federal grant money currently provided to states to support their environmental regulatory programs. So we give power back to the states, or at least we reduce federal power, but we take away the money needed to implement those state programs. If you put all these things together, they convince me that the movement to devolve power from the federal government back to the states, except when the states want more stringent regulations, has nothing to do with an ideological commitment to protecting state sovereignty. Instead, it's all about getting rid of as much environmental regulation as quickly as possible. Third area of environmental policy relates to resource commitments. Administration officials have recommended cutting EPA's staffing significantly, indeed to the lowest levels that they've been since the early 1970s, shortly after the agency was first created. Notwithstanding the fact that the agency's legal responsibilities have increased enormously since that time. The first step would be cutting staffing by about 3,200 people out of the current 15,000. That's written into the Trump administration's proposed 2018 budget. Former Obama administration officials claim that that kind of reduction in and of itself would make it impossible for EPA to fulfill its statutory responsibilities. But the Trump administration sees that as the first cut, with more to follow. Grants to local governments would be cut by 44% on top of an initial cut of 10% slated for this year. The budget would cut enforcement money by 24%. The former EPA enforcement chief called the proposed cuts a death blow to further enforcement by the agency. And other things, there'd simply be no money 
to hire scientific experts to substantiate alleged environmental violations or to travel to the sites of the um, violations or lawsuits. The Trump administration has made no secret of its desire to significantly reduce congressional appropriations for EPA. Trump has proposed cutting EPA's overall budget by 31%. Both proponents and critics of that budget agree that it is a massive cut that represents the first step toward what administration officials have referred to as a deconstruction of the agency. Or it is, to put it as, as one did, the effort to only reduce EPA to tidbits. Fourth area of policy that's significant, and that is climate change. I guess my subheading here would be, it's not happening, and if it is, we don't want to know about it. The president's position on climate change is clear. He's called it a bunch of bunk. He's called it a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese government to impair the U.S.'s ability to compete economically by inducing it to adopt needless environmental regulations that wouldn't be replicated in China. An acting assistant administrator of EPA followed the president's lead, calling climate change a non-problem. Indeed, he called attendees at a conference who objected to that characterization as ignorant. The Trump administration is seeking to sharply curtail, if not eliminate, federal funding of scientific research involving climate change. Trump's budget director said recently that the administration is not spending any more money studying climate change because we consider that to be a waste of money, he said, money down the drain. One administration source recently said, anything that has two C's in it, climate change, is done in terms of federal funding. Trump apparently plans to revoke the authority of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, to devote any money to climate change research, even though it is the lead federal agency doing so at the present time. The president plans to confine NASA to activities relating to space travel. Trump's budget would eliminate all funding for satellite and low-orbit research that provides key data for climate change studies. His budget director recently said that we're not spending money on human contributions to climate change because, again, we consider that to be a waste of money. One wonders where he found these people. But nonsensically, given his professed belief that climate change is not happening, the budget supports vigorous funding for geoengineering to study efforts to manage a problem that the president and many of his advisors deny even exists. What about climate change regulation? The Obama administration's most significant effort to regulate greenhouse gas emissions took the form of something called the Clean Power Plan. It was adopted about a year and a half or so ago. The Clean Power Plan, which is a set of regulations adopted under the Clean Air Act, requires states to adopt plans to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from existing electric utilities, which are the largest source of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases 
in the U.S. The plan sets aggregate caps on a state-by-state -state basis for greenhouse gas emissions from electric utilities within each state. It provides the states with broad flexibility to decide how they're going to comply with those statewide caps. States might decide, for example, to require utilities to operate more efficiently so that they're burning less fuel for each unit of power produced, thereby generating fewer greenhouse gases. States might choose instead to require electric utilities to shift the mix of fuels they use to produce power from fossil fuel sources like coal to less polluting fossil fuels like natural gas to non-fossil fuels like solar, wind, or nuclear power. The electric utility, with some exceptions, and the coal industry have been vehement opponents of the Clean Power Plan from the day that it was first proposed. Not coincidentally, the plan has been challenged in court in a suit brought by, among others, Scott Pruitt. The case was argued last fall in the Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia, and a decision is pending, although it may never be issued for reasons that will become clear in a minute. Last week, President Trump signed an executive order, which may be the most destructive presidential act on the environment ever taken by any U.S. president. The stated policy of the order is to review existing regulations that potentially burden development or use of domestically produced energy resources, read fossil fuels, and appropriately suspend, revise, or rescind those that unduly burden development of domestic energy resources. So how does the president seek to implement that policy? He revoked a series of executive orders issued by President Obama. And I'll mention just a couple. One of them required federal agencies to help local governments prepare for the impacts of climate change, buying, among other things, financing adaptation efforts by local governments. Repealed. Federal government no longer has a responsibility to help local governments study or prepare for climate change. Another executive order that was revoked by Trump's order was one that talked about the threats that climate change poses to national security in the U.S. and ordered the defense agencies to begin preparing to address those threats, repealed by the Trump executive order. Also rescinded by the order, President Obama's climate action plan, which included three main components. Number one, a pledge to cut carbon emissions nationwide. Number two, a commitment by the federal government to help state and local governments develop infrastructure to deal with likely severe weather events linked to climate change. And third, a commitment by the United States to lead a global effort to reduce carbon emissions, all rescinded by the Trump order. Also rescinded was a guidance document issued by our Council on Environmental Quality, which is an agency that implements our environmental assessment law, NEPA, that required federal agencies before taking any significant major action to consider both the impact of climate change on the proposed action 
and the impact of the proposed action on climate change. No longer any obligation to do so as a matter of executive guidance, although the courts, I suspect, will continue to require that kind of analysis, at least in some circumstances. Trump ordered EPA to immediately take steps necessary to review a series of Obama-era climate change regulations, and if appropriate, as soon as possible, suspend, revise, or rescind them. Number one on the list, the Clean Power Plan. And so it may be that we will never get a judicial ruling on the validity of the Clean Power Plan uh, because the administration apparently intends to revoke it. Indeed, the executive order ordered Attorney General Sessions to stop defending the legality of the Clean Power Plan in federal court and to ask the court to halt the litigation pending whatever action the administration decides to take on the Clean Power Plan in the future, presumably to repeal it. Pruitt quickly sent a letter to state leaders reminding them that they don't have to spend any money complying with the Clean Power Plan. Because number one, it's been stayed in, in the pending litigation and is likely not to remain in effect. One thing that was not in the executive order was a mandate for EPA to review what's called its endangerment finding. It's scientific determination that climate change emissions from motor vehicles cause or contribute to a significant endangerment to public health or welfare in the US. Some expected that the mandate to review the endangerment finding would be in the executive order. It wasn't, and it's not quite clear why it wasn't. According to some accounts, Pruitt advised against including that in the executive order because he felt that notwithstanding everything else Trump wanted to do about climate change, this was simply indefensible. That the administration couldn't come up with a plausible explanation for why the science no longer supports the conclusion that climate change is an endangerment to public health or welfare. But since the issuance of the executive order, the administration has been under considerable pressure to add this to the list of things that are gonna be reviewed. And, and indeed, uh, Pruitt said just a couple of days ago that if somebody managed to file a petition to revoke the endangerment fine, the EPA would, of course, consider it. What else fell by the wayside as a result of the executive order? The Obama administration's interagency working group on social cost of carbon issued a series of documents which sought to put a price on carbon emissions. Every single document issued by that working group was rescinded by the Trump executive order, along with a mandate to review the existing number that the administration had placed on the social cost of carbon. The Obama administration had issued a moratorium on further leasing of coal resources on federal government lands until a comprehensive evaluation could take place of the need for further coal and the impact of extraction and burning of coal on the environment. The Trump executive order lifts the moratorium. And indeed, the day after the executive order was issued, the Secretary of Interior, Ryan Zinke, immediately ordered a resumption of coal leasing 
on federally owned lands, notwithstanding the fact that it's not clear that coal companies even have any interest in developing those resources in the near future. Well, what about oil and gas? What does the executive order do on that front in relation to climate change? The order requires the Interior Department to review and, if appropriate, rescind a variety of regulations relating to oil and gas development, as well as requiring EPA to do likewise. So EPA is supposed to review regulations that restrict greenhouse gas emissions from new oil and gas sector sources. The Interior Department is supposed to review and presumably repeal regulations restricting hydraulic fracturing on federally owned lands for, among other things, um, the purpose of preventing water pollution that results from hydraulic fracturing and uh, the development of more fossil fuel resources that would uh, add to climate change woes. <coughs> the Interior Department is also supposed to review regulations issued by the Obama administration that impose productive conditions on oil and gas exploration and development in national parks and wildlife refuges. The democratic response to the president's executive order, <coughs> excuse me, was to introduce a bill called the Climate Act. And the word climate was an acronym for Congressional Leadership in Mitigating Administration Threats to the Earth Act. So that's not going to get passed, but it's representative of the Democrats' view of what the executive order does. Well, I said I'd talk a little bit about international environmental law. <coughs> as, you, as you're probably aware, President Obama was a leader on international action to abate climate change-related emissions. He was instrumental in the lead-up to the Paris Agreement that was signed um, about a year and a half ago uh, that built upon the 1992 UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Some expected the executive order that, that, that Trump just signed to include um, a withdrawal of the United States from the Paris Agreement. It did not, and some were surprised by that. Now, that might still happen. The Trump administration might withdraw from the Paris Agreement, although the timeline for doing so is, is not exactly clear. Another possibility would be for the Trump administration to withdraw the U.S. from the, the 1992 Framework Convention, which would automatically uh, negate U.S. participation in the Paris Agreement. <coughs> the U.S. can withdraw from the uh, 1992 Convention uh, simply by providing one year's notice to the United Nations. Trump's budget would eliminate all funding for international climate change financial assistance. And Republicans in Congress have introduced legislation <coughs> that would prohibit the U.S. from making any monetary contributions to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or the Framework Convention. So why, why hasn't Trump withdrawn from the Paris Agreement? yet. Well, it may be that there are political constraints that are at least providing some caution before the administration takes that step. Exxon Mobil last week urged the United States to stay 
in the Paris Agreement, if only because it would enhance the U.S.'s ability to influence implementation of the agreement. So if we pull out, the idea is we have no say in what happens elsewhere. Secretary Tillerson, from what I understand, has cautioned the United States not to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. Not, I don't think, because of any uh, steadfast commitment to action on climate change, but because of possible concerns about retaliation by other nations. If the U.S. pulls out of Paris and the agreement collapses because one of the major GHG-producing nations is no longer a party, other nations may be less willing to go along with proposed agreements and actions that Tillerson wants to take in other areas. So it may be that the U.S. stays in to retain its leverage in other areas that the administration cares more about. Finally, there has been uh, some speculation that the president's daughter and son-in-law have urged him not to withdraw from Paris. And uh, Ivanka Trump was just uh, appointed to an official position in the administration uh, this week. And it may be that, uh, uh, that she's having some effect on, at least for now, keeping uh, the United States um, in the agreement. So we'll have to see what happens um, on that front as we move along. Other policies that the Trump administration is um, affecting or likely to affect, other forms of air pollution are going to be affected. The um, Obama administration strengthened the um, federal regulations that, that uh, are designed to restrict ozone pollution. The Republicans in Congress want that rule repealed or at least deferred, delayed for 10 years. Notwithstanding the fact that 120 million people in the United States live in areas that are still not in compliance with the pre-existing weaker ozone standard that existed before 2015. My guess is the Trump administration will take steps to, if not repeal, then at least delay the, the ozone standard. Other air pollution regulations likely to be targeted include uh, a, a regulation issued by the Obama administration that was designed to abate interstate air pollution, which has been one of the most difficult problems for EPA to handle over the last 40 years. Water pollution, also likely to take a hit under the uh, Trump administration. After eight years of study and preparation, the Obama administration issued a rule through its Interior Department late last year that was designed to restrict a practice called mountaintop removal mining. This is a practice on the part of the coal industry that literally blows the top off of mountains so that you can have access to the coal underneath. That would be much more expensive to mine if you had an inconvenient mountain on top of it. So blow the mountain away and what do you do with the debris that results from the removal process? You dump it in nearby streams with obviously devastating effects on stream quality and aquatic life. Again, eight years it took for the Obama administration to adopt that regulation. Both houses of Congress passed a bill repealing the rule after 10 hours of debate, eight years preparation, 10 hours, and the president signed that bill. So that regulation no longer exists. In signing the bill, Trump pronounced 
that he was doing so because we haven't treated coal with the respect it deserves. The repeal also reinstated a finding reached during the Bush administration and confirmed by the Obama administration that mountaintop removal mining jeopardizes listed endangered species and their critical habitats. So that scientific determination no longer exists officially either. Second major prong of the Trump administration's likely attack on water pollution regulation relates to something called the Waters of the United States Rule. This is highly arcane and technical, but basically this is a regulation that's designed to define the scope of EPA's authority to adopt water pollution regulations that are designed to protect surface waters like lakes, rivers, and streams. The rule adopted by the Obama administration, again, in the last year or so, was designed to clear up massive confusion about the scope of our Federal Clean Water Act that was created by two or three very perplexing Supreme Court decisions on that issue. In the most recent of those decisions, Chief Justice Roberts made an explicit plea to EPA to clarify the scope of the statute by adopting new regulations to find the key term waters of the United States to which the regulations apply. EPA did exactly that, adopting regulations, which in the view of some actually narrowed the scope of the statute. Yet responding to complaints by the agriculture industry, among others, EPA is primed to cut significantly the scope of that rule, if not repeal it entirely. Trump himself has announced opposition to the rule, and Scott Pruitt promised to repeal it on his first day in office. What about public natural resources, natural resource policy? In 1906, President Theodore Roosevelt, one of the strongest environmental protection presidents ever to hold office in the US, signed into law a statute called the Antiquities Act. The act gives the President of the United States the unilateral power to designate historic landmarks and other objects of historic or scientific interest situated on land owned by the federal government as national monuments. Once established, these monuments must be managed by our National Park Service to protect their value to future generations. And commercial and extractive uses are highly restricted on these lands. Some of America's most iconic landscapes began as presidentially declared national monuments, although Congress converted some of them later to national parks, which are even more highly protected than national monuments. Just to mention a few national parks, I suspect some of you have visited some of them, that began as national monuments but later were turned into national parks. The Grand Canyon, Grand Teton, Bryce, Zion, Acadia, Olympic National Parks all began as national monuments declared by presidents. Almost every president since Roosevelt, 110 years ago, has used the Antiquities Act to create national monuments. No president has ever reversed his predecessor's designation of a national monument, and Congress hasn't done so either. As I said, every time Congress has acted, it's gone further and provided even more protection to the monuments declared by a president. Trump's advisors, including the nominee for Interior Secretary, who's since been confirmed, have urged him to reverse some, if not all, of President Obama's monument designations so that these lands would once again become open 
to oil and gas drilling and other mineral extraction. They have assured the president that he has the legal authority to do that, even though that's very much an open question. Congressional leaders have also introduced bills that would prevent designation of future national monuments without approval by an act of Congress, or even by the legislature of the state in which the monument would be located. State interests are not always wholly correspondent with national interests, and it may be that an area that is nationally significant is not regarded as such by the state and therefore wouldn't be approved as a national monument. In related areas, Trump, as you may have heard, approved the controversial Keystone XL oil pipeline to carry, on, to carry Canadian tar sands across uh, the US down to the Gulf of Mexico. The Obama administration had blocked that pipeline. Leaders of key congressional committees want to repeal the Endangered Species Act in its entirety. The act has prevented many species from going extinct in protected species habitat that's critical to the preservation of biological diversity. I don't think the Endangered Species Act will be repealed in its entirety. I don't think the American people would stand for that. But there are bills pending that have a better chance of being adopted that would remove the existing protections for some iconic species like wolves. It would make it harder for environmental groups to petition the agency to list new species and that would water down the Endangered Species Act protections by requiring greater attention to cost than the statute currently allows. The Trump administration favors allowing oil drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, a 20 million acre tract that is the largest area of designated wilderness within the United States. Congressional Republicans have been trying to open up the refuge to oil drilling for literally decades and they may now have uh, sufficient votes and uh, a friend in the White House to accomplish that. The largest chunk of the hundreds of millions of acres of lands owned by the federal government is managed by an agency called the Bureau of Land Management, which is part of the Interior Department. A statute requires the BLM to adopt land use plans to determine which uses are appropriate for which areas of lands that it manages and what conditions should be imposed upon those uses. The BLM issued regulations governing the planning process in 1983, but it hadn't updated those regulations until last year when the Obama administration revised the regulations. The BLM said the update was necessary because use patterns and needs on its lands had changed dramatically in the ensuing 35 years, and new scientific techniques for analyzing and predicting the impacts of different uses on federal lands and resources had developed. And so the update was essentially designed to bring the BLM planning process into the 21st century. Congress, a week or two ago, voted to repeal the BLM planning rule and Trump signed the bill. So that regulation is gone as well. And as I'll explain in a couple of minutes, the impact of that repeal is to prohibit the BLM from issuing a substantially similar rule, essentially forcing the BLM to plan on the basis of highly obsolete information. The motivation for the repeal, it seems to me, is likely to be opposition to it by the oil and gas industry, which feared that it would restrict its opportunities for mineral development on BLM lands. 
The rule also made a point of emphasizing the need to plan for ecological health and to anticipate the impacts of climate change on BLM lands and resources. These are fighting words for congressional Republicans and many in the Trump administration. And so if you adopt a regulation whose goal is protecting ecological health and mitigating climate change, it's a target almost automatically. Another bill passed by Congress and signed by Trump in recent weeks is a bill that gave the federal government tighter control over managing predatory animal populations on national wildlife refuges in Alaska. Essentially, the bill gives states greater authority to authorize killing of bears, wolves, and coyotes. All right, finally, procedure in my last several minutes, my third P. So what's my subtitle here? Throwing sand in the gears, except when the gears are being used to deregulate. Let me start with something called the Congressional Review Act. There's a statute that was adopted in 1996 by Congress that gives Congress 60 days of session, legislative session, to overturn a regulation issued by a federal agency. Between 1996 and 2016, the statute was used only once, and that was to reverse a regulation issued by the Clinton administration called the ergonomics rule that had to do with workplace health and safety. Statute requires only a majority vote in each house of Congress and signature by the president to repeal a regulation. Repeal can take place after as little as 10 hours of debate. That was my 10 hours that I talked about a few minutes ago in connection with the mountaintop removal bill. And it's 10 hours no matter how long the process of adopting the rule was or how complex and technical the subject matter of the rule is. Once Congress repeals a rule and the president signs the repeal legislation under the Congressional Review Act, the agency that adopted the regulation is forbidden from issuing a substantially similar rule absent congressional authorization forever. Forever. Permanent ban on the adoption of a similar rule. Well, the mountaintop removal line, uh, rule repealed under the Congressional Review Act. The BLM planning rule repealed under the Congressional Review Act. The Securities Exchange Commission issued a rule, a rule last year that required oil, gas, and coal companies to report to the federal government all royalties, fees, and payments made to foreign governments. The rule was meant to, to boost transparency by requiring disclosure of money that finds its way into the hands of dictators and terrorists. Repealed under the Congressional Review Act and signed by Trump. A rule that's likely to be repealed but hasn't been yet is a rule issued by the Obama BLM that restricted the flaring and venting of natural gas in the course of oil and gas development. Two purposes, number one, prevent waste of a natural source that could be put to productive use, and two, natural gas has a high methane content, and methane is a highly potent greenhouse gas. So that was supposed to um, help prevent climate change. Um, the House has already passed a repeal bill under the Congressional Review Act. Not clear whether the Senate will do so, but even if it doesn't, Trump targeted that rule under his executive order. What else in terms of procedure? The so-called two-for-one executive order. President Trump, early on, maybe the first week or two in office, signed an executive order 
requiring federal agencies to offset the cost of any new regulation that they adopt by repealing two regulations that impose at least equal costs. Trump explained that we're going to be reducing regulations big league, to use his usual sophisticated terminology. But an environmental law professor in the US who worked on that rule and on key policy matters under Obama said that this is the epitome of arbitrariness. There's no effort to determine what the benefits of repealed regulations are. They don't count at all. All we look at is what the cost of a new regulation would be, even if it's outweighed by significant social benefits, and the cost itself requires a repeal of two regulations that impose similar costs. There's another bill pending before Congress that the Trump administration supports called the RAINS Act, which would do a couple of things. It would prohibit federal agencies from adopting any significant major new regulations unless and until they're approved by Congress. Well, Congress doesn't have time to address more than a handful of regulations each year. It's got other things it needs to do. And it lacks the expertise to understand the administrative record that accompanies these regulations, which typically run thousands and thousands of pages. So you're going to get Congress looking at a handful of regulations that it doesn't understand to decide whether they remain in effect, and all other regulations simply don't get adopted. But it goes worse than that. The statute would require agencies to treat 10% of existing regulations each year as if they were new regulations, subjecting them to the same congressional veto power. So although it's supposed to be a good government bill, it's really, in my view, a radical deregulatory tool. Other efforts would include significant new procedural obstacles to the adoption of new regulations. One bill would require agencies to hold formal hearings, which would likely drag out the process of adopting regulations for years. There's a provision in that bill that says any regulation that's not adopted within two years of the commencement of the rulemaking process has to start all over again. It'd be virtually impossible to adopt any regulation within two years. So basically, you've got uh, a never-ending cycle of, of adopting regulations that can't be adopted. All right, let me just finish for, for a minute or two with some thoughts about whether what's happening in the US, which again, I regard as appalling, might happen elsewhere. What are the conditions likely to make it possible for the Trump administration's assault on environmental law and for progressive government in particular to be emulated elsewhere? I think there are five things that contributed to the current situation in the US. Number one, a willingness on the part of political leaders to advance narrow economic interests instead of the broader public interest, which has been facilitated by campaign finance laws that allow corporate interests to direct huge sums of money to the campaigns of sympathetic candidates without disclosing that they've done so. Second, voting restrictions. By making it hard, in some cases impossible, for certain segments of society to vote, political parties can block voting by those most likely to oppose their agendas. The Republican Party in many states, which are responsible for administering the US election laws, have put in place significant barriers to voting by groups unlikely to support them, primarily African Americans. Third, a willingness to ignore facts. Rational public policy of any kind has to be based on reality. 
not on alternative facts or other euphemisms for blatant lies. Steadfast denial of the existence of climate change has been Republican Party orthodoxy in the U.S. for decades. At the same time, the party has harassed and orchestrated attacks on the credibility and integrity of scientific researchers who support the consensus views on climate change. If facts no longer matter, meaningful debate is impossible because nothing the opposition says has to be given any credit. Fourth, an uninformed electorate. The Trump administration's apparent support for slashing funding for public education is extremely troublesome. So have been past efforts at all levels of government to dictate the content of the curriculum in directions that are at odds with the development of open-minded and inquisitive students. And finally, a supine or disabled free press. You've probably seen that the Trump administration has sought to prevent certain news outlets from even attending his press conferences, which is unheard of. The growth of one-sided news outlets like Fox News and some alternative media-based sources like blogs has exacerbated the uninformed electorate because it's harder than ever to distinguish between legitimate outlets and those purveying ideologically driven nonsense. Shining the spotlight on government practices has been a hallmark of the U.S. press for decades, if not over 100 years, as coverage of the Watergate scandal during the Nixon administration reveals. It remains to be seen whether traditional media are willing or able to play that role in today's political environment in the U.S. I have some hopes that they are able to do so and that as a result, public opposition to the Trump administration's environmental policy agenda uh, will defeat some of its most blatant efforts. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash Sydney underscore ideas.